The Peace Dependency Podcast is brought to you by Total Radness. Shop your goofy food controller, TWO merch, and CTWC approved hardware on TotalRadNES.com. Welcome to the Peace Dependency Podcast. I'm your host, Frank, also known as Sir Mason. It's the first show of 2022 and we start off with a boom. Longtime CTWC commentator Chris Tang is joining the show today. We talked about Nintendo World Championship, CTWC, commentating and much, much more. This is our conversation. Chris, welcome to the Peace Dependency Podcast, and thank you so much for doing this. Oh, well, uh, thank you for inviting me. It's, a, it's an honor to join this, and I've watched uh, some of the other podcasts over the last few months, and uh, I, I really like uh, what this does for the community and um, getting to hear uh, longer format interviews uh, with someone who's really invested in the scene. So uh, thank you, Sir Mazur, for inviting me. First question is always the same question for everyone who's new on the podcast, and that is how did you get into NES Tetris? Well, my story with NES Tetris goes way back, way back to when it was first released. Um, I guess it was around 1989, and it came out yeah. for the 8-bit Nintendo, and uh, I was right in on the ground floor. I mean, I had my 8-bit Nintendo as soon as it was, no, it was before it was released. Uh, my dad got me a test market version from uh, FAO Schwartz when it was uh, prior to the full release. So I had um, a very strange Nintendo that could do yeah. things that other Nintendos couldn't do. It could play oh, wow. uh, Hong Kong games. It could play games without a security chip. Like different region games. Yeah, it could play different region games. It could play like pirated games that uh, other systems couldn't because you know later on Nintendo revised it and made it so that uh, it, it absolutely needed uh, the lockout chip in order to function. But mine didn't. It yeah. was so early in the, in the run. Uh, I, I found out this stuff a little bit later. Like, it wasn't even um, commonly known. But what ended up happening was the kids in school, like, I lived in uh, Hawaii, which was, you know, halfway between Japan and Asia and uh, the, the rest of the United States. So a lot of yeah. the kids in the school had relatives that were in other countries, like Japan and Hong Kong. And they'd send yeah. their kids these cartridges, you know, the, the parents or the grandparents didn't know what, what they were sending the, these kids in Hawaii. No. They'd try it on their Nintendo and it wouldn't work. Uh, then they met me and they found out that, or I found out that I could play that stuff and they couldn't. So that's kind of like, that was my <laughs> hint that there's something special about my Nintendo. But anyway, that's part of another part of the story. Anyway, the point is that I was a very early adopter of the Nintendo and I played everything that was cutting edge on the system. Uh, as soon as it came out, I ended up being the Hawaii State Nintendo champion uh, which was a contest on Super Mario Brothers. It was like a speed run contest. You had 10 minutes and you were supposed to get as far as you could and uh, with the most amount of points. And I was yeah. the only one to beat the game. Oh. So 
I beat it in like seven minutes and got like a really <laughs> high score. Uh, so I was already in competitive gaming. That was my first uh, gaming competition. But uh, why that's notable is because uh, that was held, I think, in 1988 or 1989. And that gave me yeah. the experience I needed for the Nintendo World Championships held in 1990. And that's the tournament where NES Tetris really held center stage. And that was the pivotal game uh, that mattered in uh, that competition. So, of course, when I found out about the Nintendo World Championships, uh, I, you know, practiced up on NES Tetris. You know, I got the game as soon as it came out, and uh, I played the crap out of it until I thought I was good enough to have a shot at uh, uh, winning in the city. So, um, the, the Nintendo World Championships came to my local area, uh, which would be uh, Oakland, California at the time, because I had moved yeah. from Hawaii to California. And I did yeah. extremely well. Like, the first day that I was at the competition... Everybody was saying that they hadn't seen anyone play as good as me. But then by day two and day three, they said there was another kid who was like really, really good. And I hadn't run into him. And uh, at, oh. at the end of the tournament, uh, you know, I made top seven, just barely. And I ended up uh, getting third. But who ended up in first place uh, was Robin Mahara, who uh, was one of the founders of CTWC. And uh, yeah. uh, uh, Robin and I became really good friends. Uh, we had just kind of met in passing in Oakland, and uh, he won first place there, and I came in third. Um, Oakland was his second city, so he, he lost in his uh, Portland uh, qualifier, went down oh, to Oakland, yeah. won Oakland, beat me, sent me down to Los Angeles, and then I won <laughs> Los Angeles. So that's quite a story there, right? And uh, the irony of all of this is when I got sent down to Los Angeles and I won there, I made friends. And those friends were the friends that got me into the video game industry. And I ended up working at Tengen like two weeks after my, my city qualifier. And I was oh, like wow. 12 or 13. So What did you do for Tengen? Uh, I, wow. Um, I can't remember. The, it was like the product development department, but we did things like uh, game counseling and store returns and game testing and... Uh, product development uh, reports and things like that. So, like yeah. if a game came in from a developer and they were trying to pitch it to us and uh, they wanted to know uh, what they needed to do to get published at the time, uh, this was like yeah. really early days for uh, consoles. Uh, so uh, people like me would evaluate it and I'd write a report and say, "Okay, uh, this game's great. We should pick this up." Or this game sucks. Let's not bother with it. Or this shows a lot of potential but uh, you should add an RPG mode because it would be really cool if you add an RPG mode to Gauntlet. Uh, and then, um, and then the, the developer would be like, oh my God, we got to put an RPG mode in the game. And then they'd, they'd put the RPG mode in the game and then would ship <laughs> the game a couple of years later. And uh, yeah, that's, another, that's another story, but things like that actually happened there and it was magical and it was a wonderful time to be uh, in video games. And it's how I kind of got my uh, start as a game designer was learning everything that there was to know about how to make video games uh, through that department that kind of handled a little bit of everything. You know, I answered the phone calls uh, that came in uh, for tips on video games. You know, in Nintendo yeah. Power, they would have these um, Nintendo Game Counselor profiles. And I'd always read that magazine. And I'd be like, I really want to be a game counselor someday. And through that job at Tengen, I got to do that for a little while. And uh, it was just kind of like part of uh, a jack-of-all-trades sort of department that, that did a lot of things that... Uh, yeah, if they needed a game that needed to be broken, like uh, for tempting, yeah. 
like you know they call someone like me and we all had our different specialties you try to find glitches and bugs and all that yeah break the game make it do crazy things um so you know that and my competitive gaming profile uh sort of uh went hand in hand like if you know about games and you know kind of what makes them work under the hood and uh you like playing them and you like doing crazy things with them then uh, yeah. that was exactly the sort of thing that you need to do as like a tester and product development consultant sort of person so in a way robbing mahara beating you in oakland california was the start of your career in the gaming industry ah, yeah it was crazy because i wouldn't have met uh the people from that went to the nwc uh that that went there who who all worked at tenya and they all went down to the la thing and i met them there and i found out about uh like I found, I didn't even know that they worked for a game company until the very end. And then, oh. uh, you know, Tengen made a version of Tetris. So that, you know, uh, the fact that Tetris was such a pivotal part of the NWC and such a pivotal part of Tengen's history uh, was really kind of cool. And uh, yeah, later on in the story, I mean, I could probably talk about this later, but I actually ended up working for BPS, uh, the actual company that made the official <laughs> license Tengen, or the official... Tetris games later on. So, you know, I was kind of like part of the Renegade group at first, and then I went to the official group. So I kind of have this interesting perspective since Tetris is just this huge part of my life. Well, you you worked on Tetris Worlds, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was the first guideline game, believe it or not. Uh, light shadow effect that you, when you hard drop a piece? Yeah, the hard drop trailing shadow was something I uh, I proposed and had executed and implemented into the game. Uh, starting with Tetris Worlds, and uh, all the games use it now. So if there's one thing that I'm most proud of that Tetris has because of my involvement with them officially, uh, that's that's the thing. I could say, hey, look at the cover of uh, Tetris Effect Connected, and there's like a, you know, a hard drop trailing shadow right there on the cover. That's amazing that you, that you can contribute in a way that future Tetris games will implement it. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good feeling. And it's, it's just that sort of thing that, you know, it wasn't something too technical. It's something that everybody can understand. And I can all say yeah. that, you know, well, if that weren't there, the pieces, the pieces would just teleport and you wouldn't be able to tell where it came from. Uh, but that effect was uh, really important to player comprehension, I felt, especially in a world when uh, hard drops had were just starting to be... Um, I guess they were just starting to be used on console. Usually it was just a PC thing because you'd use uh, like up on the directional arrow. Uh, but console yeah. games typically did not use that until Tetris Worlds. Let's go back to the Nintendo World Championship. Yeah, so I got beaten in Oakland and uh, sent down to LA, and then I won in LA. And then you got to the finals in Universe Studios and also in uh, Los Angeles. So that is uh, where Robin and I really got to kind of hang out because uh, I guess he was sort of surprised that I also went to a second city and then won, but he was like really glad because he had been through that exact same experience and we're both back-to-back yeah. -back city winners and we were both back-to-back -back send the other guy to the next city winners. <laughs> so we kind of have this unspoken bond because of that. And when I got there, he told me that he went to other cities even after uh, the one that I had won and that uh, in Super Mario, they learned a new pattern where you commit suicide uh, over and over again to get your 50 coins instead of going through World 1-2. Uh, so he yeah. taught me that. He didn't need to do that. But I'll always remember that he was gracious enough and um, awesome enough to, you know, kind of like tell me a secret that I didn't need to be told. And uh, that really uh, 
cemented that you know he was my friend and you know we were we were trying to uh, do we were all trying to do the best that we could uh as players and uh uh you don't see that too often in competitive gaming communities and i know that that kind of spirit echoes through the tetris community true and it's kind of awesome that way like it's something that i hold a lot of value in when i see it and i don't see it in other communities especially uh, ones where you know there's money on the line or there's there's a big big prizes on the line, uh, but ha just having that spirit of like you know we're just we're kids trying to win a contest, but we're still helping each other. That's awesome, and I love seeing uh, things like that in our community. Uh, players sharing their techniques, uh, Jonas making these videos, you know, teaching players best practices and how to stack, yeah, and and all that stuff. Uh, it's all in that same spirit. Uh, so anytime I see that. I just feel really blessed that our community has things like that in it. It's it's the foundation of of the classic Tetris community. Can can we trace that back to the Nintendo World Championships back in the nineties? Yeah, yeah, you definitely can. We were all uh, we we have that spirit, and when you see the old videos of us hanging out and stuff like that in the nineties, I see that you know with uh, with the new players coming in now, and you know um, when we had our live events and things like that, and just uh, just that energy. It's something you don't see too much in uh, competitive gaming. What meant the Nintendo World Championships uh, to you? Uh, I think I made, I think it came in like eighth or ninth or something. I didn't make top seven. Uh, so I scored really well, though. I, I got like, like just on the border of two million, uh, which was a good score uh, for, uh, for what it was in our sort of like the runoff round. So I wasn't yeah. unhappy with, with my performance, but uh, you know Thor was just so much better than everybody else. There, there was like no way. Like even if I made top seven, I think um, you know Thor would have just blown us all away anyway. And uh, if everything didn't just happen the way it did, um, you know we might not have a CTWC right now. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. You know, and uh, I might not have won the whole NWC, but I did win really major contests later on after that so yeah yeah i'll uh yeah i'm i'm fine with that <laughs> i mean you're the 1994 rock the rock sega world champion yeah yeah uh if i can't be a nintendo world champion then i think i'll take the sega <laughs> world champion that's fine with me isn't it a little bit conflicted that you went from nintendo to sega because these companies were major rivals especially back in in yeah. the early 90s of course they were but um the thing is um i was always uh I love video games guy and I know I don't know culturally a lot of players are like you know they they say they're like a Nintendo fan or they say they're a Sega fan and that only their team or only their brand is like the best and I never really believed in that because I play what's good and both yeah. um companies or all the companies that are ever involved in gaming you know they make good stuff and they make really bad stuff and I think it's better for gaming when you can praise the stuff that's good and you can uh, analyze and you can criticize the things that they do wrong. And uh, both companies or you know, at the time, Nintendo and Sega would do good things and bad things. And it was kind of annoying to me where, you know, you'd have typical uh, fanboys would, you know, just praise their own platform and never uh, criticize or never try to uh, make things for their, platform better because they already thought yeah. it was too good so um what's really funny though is my favorite system of all time is from that era but it's neither nintendo or sega my favorite system oh. is actually the nec pc engine or the turbo graphics 16. oh yeah 
uh, every uh, platform has its strengths and weaknesses, but for uh, the kinds of games that I like to play, uh, the PC Engine Turbo Graphics was definitely the best. And uh, the irony of this is that it had better Sega games than the Sega system. So when <laughs> I played Space Harrier or Afterburner, like the PC Engine version was so much better than the Genesis version uh, that um, it, it was my favorite system in part because it had better Sega games. So you did all these all these great things in, in the gaming industry, but did you end up still playing NES Tetris or was it a game that was put on a shelf and you didn't touch it? Well, what I ended up learning was that as a competitive gamer in the 90s, if you're going to be a successful competitive gamer in the 90s, you actually wanted to play what was going to be competed on. And that would change depending on whatever the competitions there would be. So, for example, in the NWC, I knew the games were going to be Super Mario, Rad Racer, and Tetris. So I played yeah. the crap out of those three games for the time that there would be some kind of end benefit for me. Uh, yeah. Winning a contest, for instance. And then for when Rock the Rock came up, I played the crap out of Sonic 3. I, I played it, you know, to the point where I felt that no one would be able to beat me. Uh, and then after the competition was over, I put that on the shelf and I didn't need to play it anymore. <laughs> uh, there are some games that I would play even after its competitive sort of um, hotness or uh, its its uh, term of popularity. Like, I think Street Fighter II Turbo Hyper Fighting was a game that I just kept playing because I liked it. And uh, yeah. I could still find competition on it online. Uh, there were versions of it, like for the Xbox 360, that allowed me to play it competitively. I think, yeah, Super uh, Street Fighter II HD Remix was a Street Fighter that I played even up until maybe a few years ago. Uh, and it's it's... I don't know, it's been out for like over 10 years. So uh, <laughs> that, that one had longer legs just because I had a place to compete with it online. Uh, yeah. But in terms of Nest Tetris, I didn't really pick up the game again until the CTWC regional qualifier for Southern California. I think it was in 2018. Even after you were the voice of CTWC for at that time, eight years, you, you didn't pick up or you didn't play the game. Um, I did. Okay, so CTWC won back in 2009 or 2010. 10, yeah. Um, after the contest was over and Jonas had won, we went back to the beach house where we were filming the documentary, and I went to go and see if I could um, do the qualifier round where they played Type B. Uh, type B, height zero, uh, level... I don't know, whatever, 16 or 18 or uh, whatever it was that people were playing. And you basically yeah. had to get every Tetris possible and uh, do yeah. that before the end of the day. And I did it in less than an hour. So I just wanted to see if I had entered or if I had been an entrant, would I have gotten to be... Uh, there were only two wildcard positions that year. So um, yeah, that went to, I think, Matt Bucco and uh, Dana. Uh, got those, yeah. those spots, but um, I think I'm not sure if pushdown points would have mattered or or what the the scores would have been. But basically, if you're able to get that perfect game, which wasn't actually that hard, like by, by today's standards, that's insanely easy to do because that's basically what you have to do anyway, except for a much longer <laughs> period of time. So you know, 25 true, true. lines and getting Tetrises with all of them, uh, yeah, was something that I I could actually do, but that was the only time I. But I wouldn't call that competitive uh, training or anything. I just wanted to see if I could do it, and I could. 
you know, have you played it since or do you play it r regularly? Um, I played it a little bit like um, at the end of 2019, I was streaming and uh, I just wanted to see if I could get my PB from when I was a kid, which was like five, I don't know, like 550,000 or something. And then I mm -hmm. did it. So like if you check my Twitch channel, uh, I do have a, a VOD like uh, recorded of me when I was streaming. And I, I played for like a couple of months and I think I got to around 600k area before I just kind of yeah. got busy and, and didn't uh, play it much again. And uh, I do uh, play for the exhibitions that we have before the CTWC every year. I think, yeah, uh, yeah I play against um, someone who's, you know, similar skill. Uh, and, um, Steve DeLuca. DeLuca. Yeah, every year. And, you know, he does his guitar thing, and then I do some weird random control hack that puts me at a disadvantage. <laughs> but we're giving each other kind of like a, like, like a disadvantage or um, uh, we're trying, I don't know, we just do crazy stuff for, for the fans just to entertain. So that's what it ends up being. And, uh, yeah, that's been fun. I haven't really seriously played. I, I would like to max it out sometime but you know i knowing the game as well as i do i know how much i'd have to play to get good enough to do that and i yeah. just don't have uh like the runway to like i'm too busy with other stuff to really justify doing that now and there isn't really any actual reward for doing it other than just saying that i that, that i did it to max out so uh i'll i'll do that yeah i'll get around to it at some point so the max out is is the goal, and then you won't touch the game ever again. No, I mean I, I don't really think I have a relationship like that with games where I'm like, like I I'll get this one you know achievement and I'll never touch it again. Like in a way, I sort of feel like that's how I should approach it, but I think I respect the game too much, and you know I might just want to like pick it up and just like mess around with it and have fun with it every once in a while. Uh, if I had yeah. that kind of relationship with a game like that, then then I think, uh, you know, it, it keeps it keeps the door open. And I think that, you know, it, it was a game that I thought I was I would never really touch again after the NWC. But seeing that all the things that our community has done has given it this amazing second life, like there's, I don't know, there's uh, there's infinite futures for for that amazing game. Uh, all the happy little accidents that made, you know, it's uh, you know, it's secrets and the things that make its limits being broken so exciting. Like, uh, yeah, I, I can never say I'd never play it again. So maybe someday I'll max it out. Maybe I won't, but it'll always be there, right? Are you surprised that the game and the community is where it is today? Uh, very surprised. Uh, I couldn't have imagined it. And it's so weird um, watching like the old videos and stuff because at the time that we were filming them, we didn't think anybody would care. Like we didn't even know uh, they were going to be put up on YouTube eventually because yeah uh, yeah that's why we kind of didn't do such a great job of documenting some of the years like between 2010 and 2014 I think is really kind of like this uh, void of videos and record keeping that uh, it was just because we were just kind of doing what we were doing and not knowing that it was going to become this huge thing eventually but I am pleased and i'm surprised and i love it I'm, i love that this has become such a huge thing and i think really the biggest impact to me is knowing that we're changing lives we're getting people excited and enjoying this culture and this game and this community uh, something that wouldn't exist if we just weren't kind of doing this fun little thing every year uh um, yeah and uh 
I guess, I guess uh, there's no manual for how to create a community or there's no manual for how to create a phenomenon or uh, to get people involved in wanting to play or wanting to watch something. I mean, I didn't ever knew we would end up on ESPN and that yeah. we'd be able to go to public places like uh, a couple of times. You know, I'd go to a sports bar in public and watch the ESPN broadcasts uh, in public, live, with other people around, you know, enjoying it too on TV. And uh, it was amazing. an amazing, amazing experience. And uh, seeing, you know, the pictures come in uh, from around the world, people watching it when it went up on ESPN, uh, that was just really putting the exclamation point on uh, uh, the reach that what we've done uh, has had and uh, that what we do is something positive. And uh, I, I couldn't have uh, written it any better if uh, if it were intentional, but... Boy, do I love it. <laughs> How do you try to keep up with all the stuff that is happening? Yeah, it is tough. You know, I, I have a lot of other things I need to do in life. You know, I'm you know, kind of like primarily a, a game developer and, and I got other things going on. Um, I watch where I can whenever there's like some kind of major tournament. Like I watched the CTEC uh, this last weekend. Uh, I watched uh, a lot of the qualifiers leading up to, to some of the events that... Um, happened uh for ctwc uh like yeah there's qualifiers there's regionals i think i watched the singapore one uh it, it's just a lot of fun it's a lot of uh i'm a fan myself right and knowing that this is kind of like the extension and the spiritual successor to uh the competitions that i played in when i was you know a kid in the 90s yeah uh, i can watch it as a fan and, and enjoy it and uh and then also take that knowledge and help have it help my commentary where do you see this community will be in like two, five years? Well, that um, depending on what aspect of the community, it could be many different things. I mean, I think that in terms of score, that's going to change uh, some of the dimensions of how we run the tournaments, possibly. But it's going to be exciting. I, I don't think it's going to be uh, bad in a way at all like some people think it might be like some people are saying like, Oh, the games are going to get too long and things like that. But I think until it actually happens, I think we got, we need to let the players just kind of do their thing, play it out. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be able to pivot, uh, accordingly live events starting to come back, I think is, uh, going to be interesting. So, uh, how we format the CTWC to accommodate for travel, especially now that, we know, you know, there's a lot of great players all around the world. Uh, how to get everybody that you know deserves to be there there and have it be fair and and still have yeah. the level of competition that we've gotten to enjoy from having it online. Like, uh, uh, but the thing is, I really have a lot of faith in uh, Trey, Vince, and Adam when it comes to uh, putting together the rule set and making sure that uh, at least all the T's have been crossed and the I's have been dotted and that uh, it was well thought through. And that's really what got us this far i believe is that there are people who are really invested in and uh making the competition uh fair and compelling uh and um putting enough thought into it that you know that it's going to be good and yeah. uh so whatever um challenges come our way i i think our leadership team is uh uh the best at what they do so looking forward to it I think it it should be a real concern if 
CTWC in 2022 is live in person in Portland again, and we can't have the best players uh, uh, go there. The the level of play is going down, and I think that is something that you, especially after CTWC 2020 and 2021, is something that you don't want. Yeah, yeah, you want the quality of the play to still be there. Uh, you want it to still be fair. You want all the people that deserve to be there to be there. So I think it's going to be some kind of hybrid. I'm not sure how they're going to pull it off. I've I've had some ideas, but I haven't actually discussed it uh, with the leadership team yet. But I probably will at some point. Uh, maybe you know, what will end up happening is they'll have an online qualifier, and maybe there will be some way to simul start the games. I mean, we we are in the unique situation where somewhat asynchronous hardware uh, is facilitated, right? Like. Yeah. We start the games in two separate locations, and it's it's good to go. That's why online works for our game. It's amazing. Right. And uh, that's a happy coincidence. Like, uh, I'm still amazed that how this competition is held is that you get two Nintendos that aren't networked with each other. You get two TVs that are you know, completely separate from each other. You start two separate games, and then, you know, you have them go, and, you know, it's a score race. And uh, that allows yeah. us to bend the barriers of time and space that other games just can't do. So maybe you can have one player playing online and then a player playing at the live event at the venue and uh, they can go head to head and have it be somewhat fair. Uh, I'm not sure how um, the checks and balances have to be. There probably have to be a little bit of extra care taken to make sure all, uh, it's all done right, but that's a possibility. You know, Maybe if you can't win the online tournament to qualify, then you got to show up in person. You know, It's like that maybe the live event is your second chance or yeah uh, the player who wins online get you know can win win the trip to the tournament to to play in person so there's a, a variety of different approaches that can be taken and i think whatever the leadership team uh, considers and decides you know we'll and uh we'll we'll, we'll roll with that and if it works it does if not we'll improve on it <laughs> are you ready to go back into uh, uh live action i mean i would like to I know last yeah. year I didn't really feel ready. I didn't feel like the world was on its feet yet. And uh, maybe it isn't yet either, but depending on how things happen, um, I've already been asked to uh, be a guest at a convention uh, where we'll be having a regional event. So uh, look forward to a Game On Expo in Phoenix, Arizona. I will probably be doing Tetris commentary there. Whether I like it or not, I think I'm going to be... Uh, I'm in it. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I think I will like it. I mean, I'm just... Uh, I don't know when the world's going to be ready, but um, I, I think I'll have to be ready when uh, the regionals come up. Let's Before we go into your role in CTWC, uh, let's talk about CTWC 2021, because there is a lot that we we can talk about. Uh, first of all, what did you think of CTWC 2021? Uh, it was insane. It, it had uh, You never think that you can top the, the, the newest year that comes out, right? When the year happens, yeah. like when 2019 happened, we're like, this can't ever be topped. And when 2020 happened, you know, it's never going to get crazier than this, right? With the two brothers and stuff across the hall, you know, from around the world to across the hall, <laughs> 2020. And then 2021 yeah. is just like even more insane, you know, with a new play style and uh, just how everything played out. Uh, a two max out cutoff score. Yeah. yeah and uh, post kill screen play really just cementing it, it's, uh, it being a factor. Uh, and foreshadowing the future of the game. So, yeah, it's uh, it was amazing. And uh, 
I, I can't wait to see where it goes. And in uh, just just everything about 2021 was uh, was a highlight reel. What was your role in CTWC 2021? Um, well, I mean, as most people know, I was uh, the commentator for uh, the top eight and also the most of the action leading up to it. I did the the bracket matches uh, for the for the for the month prior, and then um, some of the other events like the Tetris Effect Connected tournament. So I guess I would say, you know, I'm I'm a commentator first and foremost. How different is it to commentate a classic Tetris event to a guideline event? It's uh, different in that individual piece placements aren't really like uh, everything happens so fast that certain things like piece placements and maybe even score aren't the bigger picture. They're not going to be completely pivotal unless it's like a major misdrop that causes uh, the other player to be able to to win. Uh, that's not something that you have time to talk about. So you kind of have to shift your mind to other factors that determine the outcome of the match. And uh, that's really something that I kind of had to keep in mind when I would call it developing the commentary for CTWC because as our rule sets changed, the factors that determined who won and who lost also changed. Yeah. So those are the things that you need to keep in mind. And guideline, um, since you have garbage sending and since you have uh, different mechanics, like, you know, there's like a the zone meter and uh, zone mode in, in Connected. And uh, those are the things that actually matter more. So... Uh, it's very different. It's different, but yet you kind of want to keep the same level of excitement for uh, viewers. Yeah. I think it's helpful that you have someone as Beeson Shen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beeson Shen's been really helpful. Uh, before you know, I did my commentary run. I you know, I whipped up a whole list of all these questions, and they were really good questions. And you know, they turned it into like this segment at the beginning. Yeah, just to explain it for all new viewers. Yeah, because um, even uh, Tetris Effect Connected and his own battle mode, that is fairly new. So you don't have a lot of uh, commentary out there. You don't have a lot of uh, guidelines to go by in terms of uh, what people are going to be talking about. So you, you, it's just like the CTWC. We just kind of run with it, and we we kind of learn as we go along and uh, hope for the best. And I, I really enjoyed um the Tetris Effect Connected event, you know, we had like a triathlon thing too. So it brought players who might have been people who mained guideline into classic Tetris and vice versa. Yeah. So having a product that spans the generations of Tetris and has a CTWC inspired mode in it along with a guideline mode. I never thought I'd see that. That's uh another thing that I think what we did in our community in terms of uh, having influence enough to affect the actual products that are being made, uh, that's something I never expected. But that's something really cool because you know we're introducing the CTWC format and kind of like classic Tetris in general to players who might not be exposed to it otherwise and also making the format so much more accessible. You're able to just buy a modern console or a PC and you're able to play, you know, nest style Tetris uh, with all the moves and all of the timings and all of the behaviors that make it so different. Like you can just play it on a modern console, and that's unprecedented. Like I worked for BPS, and um, I knew how strict they were about the kinds of Tetris that they were allowing out there. And something 
that uh, classic, I guess, wasn't something that I thought they'd ever allow, but um, it really says something when they're able to put it in an official product and uh, all the hurdles that are involved and all the effort that it took to do it. Maybe it has also something to do with the relationship that the Tetris company has with Adam and Vince. Yeah, yeah, it could be. If they use, if you see the attention and all the eyes in the world that have been put on Tetris, uh, thanks to the CTWC, you know, that we were on ESPN and all that stuff, like that makes it very attractive to do because people say like, hey, there's that Tetris that, I saw on TV, where can I play that? Yeah. And then, um, you know, Tetris company can say, here, play Tetris Effect Connected, and you can play that mode that you saw on ESPN. If we go back to CTWC 2021, uh, what are the moments that stood out for you? Uh, so leading up to it, um, PokéNerd versus Dog with a double 1.3s yeah. was definitely one that, that stood out to me. Uh, that was... Uh, one of the first thing you saw like a, a roller versus tapping uh, finish and it was really exciting and it could have been, it was anyone's game at the end. Yeah. So that, that was a big one for me. Of course, um, the end Huff versus dog was uh, really huge. Total Radness. Total Radness. Yo, this is Steve DeLuca of Total Radness. Home of the Tetris World Tetris Order. World Order. Bringing order to a chaotic world. Ready to get rolling on the right side? Dominate the D-pad with a goofy foot controller. Visit TotalRadNES.com to score a controller modded by the inventor. Me! We've also got TWO gear. CTWC approved hardware and a ton of additional retrospective madness. Tune in to twitch.tv slash total radness to watch Quaid and I take the BLV to 11. Also, don't miss the other homies at Aaron Jawsamoki for the Boom Tetris house parties with the Kitchen Dwellers. And at Classic Vomps for those classic Tetris snugs. Be the best and keep it TWO for, for, for life. We will return to the conversation with Chris in a minute. But first, if you like the Peace Dependency Podcast, help us grow. Please share the podcast with every classic Tetris fan. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Peace Dependency. You can like our Facebook page, Peace Dependency Podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We will have all the podcasts uploaded at full length. Also, you can listen to the Peace Dependency Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Join the Tetris Friendly Discord server. Besides the fact that it's the place to discuss anything PDP, you can also participate in some lovely friendlies or put your ELO on the line in the various ELO battles. If you are on the Tetris Friendly Discord server, make sure to ask for a PDP role so you won't miss anything. If you have a suggestion we need to have on the next Beast Dependency podcast, let us know through the socials or our Discord channel. Now, let's go back to the conversation with Chris, where we will be talking about hypertapping, rolling, and dance. 
Dark went back to back this year, two-time world champion. But do you think that this is the last year that a Hyper Tapper won the championship? I don't think it's the last time we'll, we'll see a Hyper Tapper win because I think that once you get to that level of play, we've seen Hyper Tappers scale and we've seen Hyper Tappers survive in post. And just as the rollers are going to get better uh, post kill screen, uh, I think Tappers are also going to up their game if they feel that, you know, comfortable doing it. Yeah. If they haven't transitioned to rolling. So if there's holdouts that are super good at tapping and stick with it, I wouldn't count them out yet. I think rollers um, still, you know, both rollers and tappers are going to have to stack well and uh, make good placements to survive uh, post-29. So I don't, I don't think it's the death of tapping completely. And as we saw this year, uh, tapping is you know, definitely still still good, you know, for, uh, for winning against a roller uh, in the finals. But I know that rolling is also going to get more consistent and, and there's going to be more people doing it. And there's also going to be people who are expert tappers now who are going to become rollers. So that's going to diminish the population of tappers. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it's going to completely knock tappers out, and especially like, you know, every time I say like, if Corian played like at the pr previous year, with the next year's version of Corian, Corian would have won like all these years, right? I think that players are just getting better in general, and uh, we have yet to see. And that's not even to say that maybe in the next three years or two years, another hand technique might be developed that's maybe similar to rolling in a way. Yeah, uh, has elements of tapping, and uh, I, I really just think it's just a matter of uh, people getting creative with uh, the controller. And I mean. People even tap in different ways. I mean, if you saw like the way Thor tapped versus the way someone like uh, Mark Mayer taps, you know, holding it vertically or cheese yeah. with cheese grip, there's like all sorts of different ways that you can move that controller. And there's might be something that you haven't even seen yet. I mean, you've got rolling, and then you have some people who use their foot uh, as as a wedge to to roll it. So, um, Martin tried his teeth to roll. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That. Yeah, it might not be comfortable, so people might, you know, get creative just because it's funny. But that that kind of experimentation uh, should be encouraged, as long as it's not like giving uh, players uh, an unfair advantage with like some external apparatus. I think it'll probably be allowed. Can you compare rolling being slowly the dominant style over hyper tapping to a couple of years back when hyper tapping slowly became the dominant style over death? It's a little bit different because in both tapping and rolling, the object is to uh, register inputs with the game as fast as possible, right? Das is artfully using the limitations that the game gives you to be able to move pieces within that uh, set of rules, right? Like knowing that your input is being held for a certain amount uh, that your auto repeat will kick in after a certain amount of time. Like those are just little tricks that you're using to use the program that they wrote to move the pieces automatically. Uh, Das uh, does that, but hyper tapping and rolling says, no, we're not even going to mess with that. We're just going to like press the button as fast as possible. That That's really all the, the goal is. So I think the reason why Das is more, um, 
prone to be outdated is because it's not just uh, a physical difference. Yeah. It's an actual limitation that players are conforming to. So if you're conforming to the limitations, then that's going to limit your movement potential. Um, certain rules within DAS or things that DAS players use, like the, the quick tap, those are also just ways of using the limitations and trying to get by with uh, that particular set of rules. So uh, I think really the best player is going gonna, is gonna to be able to have a mix of those two. Like if you have a player who is a, a tap player or, or a roller and they also know like why the hyper quick taps and uh, like overriding like uh, like a hold into uh, a frame override because uh, the auto repeat you know, you're you're hitting the you're tapping the the pad exactly uh, when you need to so that it skips the auto repeat like that's going to be the most powerful player because then you're going to have a mastery of that knowledge and I think you know players like Green Tea I think uh, have that kind of skill as a DAS player and since you know Green Tea is learning rolling. It's going to be the best of both worlds, and that's a potentially uh, top tier player uh, for the for the future, right, of the game because they have both the powers of DAS and uh, rolling, and maybe a hybrid version, someone who's playing hyper tapping on eighteen, maybe nineteen, and is transferring to rolling on level twenty eight, maybe level twenty seven. We've seen that a lot, even this year. Players who are hyper tappers switching their grip. Like I saw that in the CTE EC as well, right? Like uh, Fractal was doing that. Yeah. So changing the grip. I mean, I, I actually really like that aesthetic because it's like, it's go time, right? It's like, you know, it's like when Ash Ketchum you know, turns his hat around and is about to like, you know, summon, <laughs> summon his, his Pokemon to finish the opponent. It's like, all right, it's on now. Switch that grip. Or if you see like a tapping player wearing a glove, you're like, oh. You know what that means. You know what's coming. <laughs> it's little things like that that uh, that are gonna grow uh, into in, into little things about our culture and, and and competitive Tetris. You know, like the glove. You know, it's like, oh, that must be a roller. It's funny because a glove used to be a dance player, and now if you see a glove, it means they roll. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Um, a, a difference in, in meaning now. I just want the ultimate hybrid player. Dance on 18, hyper tapping on 19, and then rolling on 29 and beyond. Depending on tournament format, there could be reason to do that. Like, what if you had, like, let's just say theoretically in the year, like, 2030, right? There's so many people playing this game, right? People of all ages. You've got, like, I don't know, maybe we'll even have, have to, uh, subdivide it by age bracket submission. I don't know, like the old NWC did. But let's just say we have so many players and so many rounds that you got to play. So what if you have like a thousand, right? And we have massive pools and your competition day is like you have to get through like 20, 20 opponents, right? The, the tappers are going to be like, okay, maybe I need to like do DAS when I can, tap when I need it, and then bust out the rolling in post. Like there might actually be an endurance viability and an accuracy viability that uh, that needs to be met, and you'll have players that, uh, when pushed to the limit, you know you've had a really long day, but you got to get through this literal gauntlet of uh, more Tetris than you can handle. That's what it might come down to. Let's hope 
that we get a thousand competitors to play classic Tetris and get those huge brackets. Yeah, yeah, it all depends on how, you know, interested people are and how um how high the stakes get. Sometimes when uh when a tournament has a major exposure or there's like a shift in um in the prize money, maybe it gets like super huge someday, then then there'll be more eyes on it and more sponsors and I mean, it's already pretty crazy right now. I I wouldn't have imagined uh we have, you know, big names like, you know, Microsoft and Sega and EA. We have we had a whole bunch like over the years that that were like really big and I'm like, "Whoa, that's that's pretty cool. This is getting kind of big, isn't it?" <laughs> I think you saw it already with the competitors going up, especially if you compare 2019 to 2018. We saw it with the Game Scouts videos, the line, the waiting line to play one game of Tetris was huge. And if you wanted a good game of classic Tetris, you needed that rental station. I think last year, close to 200 competitors tried to qualify for the classic Tetris World Championship. This year, we went over 200 competitors who qualified for the classic Tetris World Championship. And I have no clue what 2022 or 2023 will uh, bring gets me thinking like bringing that up like if you want to get like really big growth like that the thing is a lot of people might get intimidated if the level of skill is that super duper high so you might actually want to have more things like silver and bronze that say like well even if you're not like the number one player in the world if you think you're pretty good you could probably win money that's what you need to get like a thousand person contest going. Uh, Cause I, like you kind of saw that happen with uh, the fighting games and it's like, you might not be the top 10 in the world, but if you can go to this thing and have a good time and uh, kind of get, get in the money, if you're just good enough, then that's what will bring the big growth because it becomes just kind of like this party you go to instead of trying to win uh, and uh, having uh, a lot of, um, bots and having enough we have to have enough facilities and enough time and enough uh what do you call it, resources to be able to pull that off but that's i guess you know shooting for the moon is just thinking about that uh even though i know that as an organizer like that would be a complete nightmare to have to think about especially but... with old hardware oh and i know how are you going to have a room full to accommodate a thousand player you know bracket uh people want double elimination too it's just like oh man <laughs> How are you gonna pull that off? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. With all the NESs and all the Tetris cartridges and all the CRTs, and I, I mean, they made enough, but a thousand is a lot, right? Even if you had it on Tetris Effect connected for for some of it or or all of it, that's a lot of PS4s, you know, or or other consoles or PCs. It's still a lot of gaming hardware, and actually, in the world right now, like it's crazy because all gaming hardware prices have gone way up. Uh, like my friend's PS4 just broke and he just looked at prices online and they're like, th it's like 300 bucks for a regular PS4, not even a pro. And I'm like, that's crazy. Why is it so expensive now? It's all on demand, I guess. It's it's just gaming. Yeah, that um, shortages, lack of stuff um, being available, like taking a huge toll. So it might take a few years before we can run a really big tournament again, but uh we never thought we'd be the, become the, or grow this big. So just kind of like thinking about the future and knowing what to shoot for or what to imagine uh, still needs to be done, I guess. 
Let's talk about you and your role with CTWC because you've been part of CTWC since the very beginning, all the way back in 2010. How did you get involved with CTWC? So that um, that goes back to the beginning of our interview where um, Robin Mahara, you know, my friend, I just uh, kind of reacquainted myself with him and we started talking online and uh, he was talking about uh, wanting to make this documentary and wanting to run this tournament to find out who the best Tetris player in the world was and to try to get Thor Ackerland involved again. And uh, it was really kind of cool. Like uh, I apparently had the only video footage of Robin winning the NWC in Oakland because oh. uh, I was uh, you know also top three there. So uh, my mom recorded me and uh, she recorded him. So I went up west to uh, find some Betamax VCRs so I could transfer uh, the beta video to digital format and get it to Robin so he could put it in the movie. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of how I got involved. You know, I had some of the most and the best NWC footage that, that there actually is for it uh, since my mom was recording it. Did she also record during the NWC finals? Uh, she did, but I have not found the tape from it yet. Oh, that's a bummer. I know. I, I've been looking for years. Uh, it's been a while even since the uh, of Order came out, and I still haven't found the tape, but I know it's somewhere. So when Robin Mahara asked you to be a part of CTWC back in 2010, did you know what your role was going to be? Exactly, you know, because I think in a way, Robin kind of might have wanted me to compete at first. Yeah. But I'm like so busy. Like even back then I was, I've been a game developer since I was like 13, yeah. right? So uh, I'll never run out of things <laughs> to do. I wanted to be involved just because it was getting to hang out with my old friend again. It was interesting to me. And I don't know. I don't think I wanted to compete because I knew that I wasn't, I was too rusty at it for one thing. And I didn't have the time that I needed to invest in it to get as good. And I knew, I, even back then, I knew enough about the game to know what it would take to, to max the game out. But I did want to be involved in some way. And um, the years prior to that, doing some public speaking experience because I'd been a convention guest where, you know, I talk about video game development and cosplay and, and different things that I did uh, at conventions. So, you know, maybe I could do some kind of commentary or something that was suggested. And that's what ended up happening. I'm not exactly sure why they picked me as a commentator because it was really my first uh doing any kind of esports commentary and it still is really just the only thing I do for it. I took to it and I didn't know whether I was doing a good job for a very long time until Boom Tetris for Jeff happened. I didn't actually think I was doing a good job. <laughs> What do you try to achieve when you commentate? Uh, first of all, I try to get the idea of what wins the round or what wins the match. Uh, so different things that determine the outcome of a game are the things I try to focus on. So when a player has a big score difference or has to play aggressively or uh, tries to survive, like things like that are pivot points. And I try to focus on those. And then sometimes I'm directed. Like there was a time when me having to do score updates was really important. It's not important anymore because of the online thing and that they had Max Out Club for that which is much more accurate than having to wait for a commentator to talk about it. That that was a thing for a while, but you know, that that's changing. So, uh different things 
happen depending on uh, what the rule set is and uh, what the goals are for the broadcast at the time. So when you started, the terminology we use today, like pace, burning, playing aggressive and all that, it wasn't there. How did you try to work around that? Uh, that's a result of the rule set, right? Because, you know, the first year, it wasn't really a thing. We had weird things like line, line contests and things like that in year one. I guess the, if the goal is to max out, like back then, the, the players weren't even aware of um, the score differences and things like that. And you could, they, had, they were starting on different levels and uh, developing the rule set, I think, was really the most important thing. And then when I learn what in the rule set makes the game exciting, then those are the things that I pivot on and try to focus. So you know, that's why boom Tetris for Jeff or boom Tetris for Jonas uh, was something I focused on because Tetrises are what matter. How did you come up with the boom catchphrase? So back in the NWC 1990, every once in a while, the commentators would say something like bam Tetris or boom Tetris. And then um, I think when I was in my finals for LA, Terry Lee Torok said, there's a Tetris for Chris Tang. And um, they never like boomed my Tetrises in my finals. Like I watched the video like a lot and I'm like, they're booming everybody else, but they weren't booming me. But then Terry like said, there's a Tetris for Chris Tang. So then I kind of like felt that booming a for a player, especially since, you know, our community was kind of small at the time and uh, it just, it just rolled, you know, it, it just uh, felt right. Like boom, Tetris for Harry, boom, Tetris for Jonas. It was like a congratulatory thing. Like, a, I don't know, uh, a celebration, right? But you get to see it a lot, happen a lot since, you know, Tetris's are kind of the point of the game. I'm not really sure if uh, people got annoyed by it. I mean, sometimes, you know, at the time that I had started doing that, you know, YouTube wasn't as big as it is now, and people didn't really watch this stuff on YouTube. Uh, I would say between you know 2010 and, and 2015, it wasn't really something we were thinking about. So I didn't know whether I should continue doing that. But when Boom Tetris for Jeff happened, and uh, you know, what Boom Tetris for Jeff is, is you know the video went up 2016 finals with uh, Jonas versus Jeff, and then all the comments were like just Boom Tetris for Jeff, Boom Tetris for Jeff, Boom Tetris for Jeff, and then the meme videos came out. And it just became this thing because people liked saying and people like uh, it caught on with people. It, it was funny. It was uh, it was kind of positive in a way. And it, it just uh, became a phenomenon all of its own and helped us become viral. And uh, it's also my first experience with uh, classic Tetris. Really? Wow. Because we, yeah, we, we hear that a lot. Like, uh, do you remember uh, last year for 2020? Like, there are like three of the top eight were like, when they were asked, like, how'd they get into Tetris? They are like, uh, they got into it because of Boom Tetris for Jeff. I feel like there are three marquee moments. The 2016 finals, the 2018 finals, and the CTWC explain video by a game scout. Yeah, definitely. Because especially like, um, it, it's kind of like a domino effect because uh, Joseph got into it because of Boom Tetris for Jeff. And then people got into it because of Joseph. What was your reaction when you found out that the Boom Tetris for Jeff video got viral? He's going to get fired. <laughs> because I was like, oh no, I, I did a bad thing, right? Like, uh, I just kept repeating the same thing over and over again, and that sounds really unprofessional. And I, I thought I was, I was like, oh man, well, well, 
have fun, James. It's all you now. <laughs> yeah. like, I, was, I was really thinking that. I was. Uh, what's funny is Jeffrey Wittenhagen, who was my co-commentator, was the one who linked me to that. And like I had no idea. And they were already making the shirts by that time. So I felt really clueless because I, I didn't know like uh and I didn't know that the video got that many views. And then I went looked at, at the comments and I just lost I lost my mind because I was just like, I can't believe this is good this is happening. And I thought I did a really bad job and I thought that, you know, it wasn't something that benefited us until later, until the 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 ripple effect of of going viral gets more eyes on on what you do and then um that engagement got other people it got recommended in their youtube like everybody said that 2016 was recommended to them and then then they would add their boom tetris for jeff in the comments and then there'd be tens and thousands of people commenting boom tetris for jeff in 2019 i went to san diego comic-con and i was a speaker on esports panel yeah and uh they they kind of had me up there last minute like I, I was actually wasn't scheduled to speak but they found out who i was and then they put me up there and then um you know everybody kind of talked about esports for a little while then afterwards um after the panel like sometimes you know people from the audience will come up and and try to you know chat with the people who were speakers sometimes there's movie stars and sometimes there's really important people up there but we we're just you know it was an esa panel on esports so this family comes up to me and said, you know, we've never seen you before, but we know your voice because our son watches this video every day. Boom, Tetris for Jeff. Boom, Tetris for Jeff. <laughs> Boom, Tetris for Jeff. And apparently, like, this kid just watches that video all day long, and he loves it. And uh, they wanted my autograph, and they, they wanted to take their picture with me. And I was just like, what the heck is going on? Because I'm at Comic-Con, right? Comic-Con is where you go to look at movie stars and see panels for you know, big Hollywood productions and, you know, find out new things going on with Marvel and DC and Spider-Man and all that Especially stuff. at San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah, the big one, San Diego. But here's this random panel that, that I just happened to be in for esports and this, you know, random family, you know, just a uh, general public knows Boom Tetris for Jeff. It wasn't just Tetris nerds and, and people who uh, are into video games. It's actual people out there in the world enjoying what our community is creating and how do you feel when people feel honored that you call boom tetris and then that player's name because for the record i know some players who participated in ctwc 2020 or ctwc 2021 who didn't care if they lost everything the only thing they wanted to hear was boom tetris and then that player's name yeah i didn't know that but um i mean i've heard people ask me to say it uh every once in a while like you know put it on their phone or whatever uh, that that's a common thing, but um, that that's kind of cool. Yeah, they have to have, make at least a Tetris, hopefully, uh, if if it's in competition. Was it after the viral video that you got comfortable uh, commentating the CTWC matches? They have ever felt comfortable commentating. I think it's been realizing that what I'm doing is increasingly more important because there's a lot more riding on the line now. There's growth of a community. Uh, there's more eyes on it. There's, you know, potential for broadcast on ESPN. And uh, I think to be comfortable with something is to kind of dismiss its importance. And I think that I once I realized how important this job was, yeah, I don't think I could ever be comfortable doing it in, in the sense that I'd be relaxed and uh, 
just do it without making sure that everything I say is uh, is good. You know what I mean? Are you conscious with what you're trying to say, especially if you have fifteen to twenty thousand people watching live on Twitch or with the yearly ESPN special? Um, I'm always conscious of what I'm trying to say, so it just gets more important and more stressful, and I try to get better at it. I guess the the answer to that is I did reserve more brain power for what I'm what I'm speaking about. Uh, <laughs> increasingly more every year after that, so. Um, yeah, I, I guess yes would be the answer. Anna, if you feel the pressure when you commentate, can you enjoy it at that very moment or can you only enjoy it after the tournament is over? Absolutely enjoy it while I'm doing it. Uh, especially when I have someone to um, riff off of, like uh, Beast and Shen or James. It's actually starting to turn into... Hmm, I don't know how to say this. I have opportunities to be entertaining and I enjoy that opportunity. So, you know, when, um, when James Chen says 69% Tetris rate, that's an opportunity to say nice. Hey now. <laughs> hey now. Yeah. And that's fun, right? That's, that's enjoyable. I, I love that. Uh, and then the thing is James is completely unaware when he's saying it, what I'm about to do. So, but then, you know, you look at the comments on Twitch and, and, uh, the chat like goes crazy and, and they're laughing about it because, you know, it's, it's, it's so genuine and it's so, uh, interactive and, uh, it's real, you know, it's not scripted. I think that's really the part that I'm getting better at is trying to be, uh, entertaining and enjoying the Tetris that's being played and, and the things that happen, right? Like when there was a crucifix that, that formed and, and dog stack. I said, dog is forming a new religion in the stack. Like, I was just like, okay, that, that was an opportunity. And I don't know what I'm going to say, but I got to say something. Because that, that formation deserves to be talked about. This year, you commentated with three different people. Of course, James Chang during the CTWC Top 8 uh, main event. You also commentated with Fun Dweller on the Top 64 brackets. And you commentated with Beast and Shen during Guideline Tetris. Three people with three different styles of commentating. How do you try to adjust to a specific person or try to find a chemistry with a different person? It helps that all three of them I consider to be friends and uh, I haven't really commentated any with anyone that's been a problem, really. It's, it's always been good. Being all, Us all being fans of Tetris makes that super easy. Like, there's no real... There's no real wrong way to commentate like, I, I, I don't think there's a wrong way to do it. And everybody has their uh, perspective and their knowledge and their uh, their style. I like that James uh, likes to uh, analyze the piece placements and uh, talk about, you know, the percentage. Uh, the only thing is, the thing I noticed this year is that the, the Tetris percentage rate is going to start meaning a lot less once uh, post-play becomes a bigger thing. So James is going to have to think of something else to talk about. <laughs> but I don't want him to stop because he, I need someone to say that 69% Tetris rate. I mean, you can also say with 69 lines or 69,000 points or 690,000 points or whatever. <laughs> Everything that has 69 in it. Yeah, yeah. there's always going to be opportunities. So uh, that that's actually, uh, I think in the last couple of years, commentating has actually become, I, you know, I wouldn't say it's relaxed or comfortable. 
but it's become more fun because I'm seeing more more ways to have fun with the commentary. I like to think to myself that the last three years, 2019, 2020, 2021, were harder to commentate than 2018 and prior to that. Yeah, it, it has. I mean, the, the dimensions are changing. Um, it's not enough to, like, go crazy about a max out because now max outs are, you know, commonplace. So where do you go from there? And, uh, well, you know, the players lead the way. And when people are doing crazy tucks uh, post... 29 that's uh yeah those are the moments that that you got to keep an eye out for and it's harder because the games are going faster and if you have two play fields that you got to keep an eye on you know you you got up your game man <laughs> oh yeah yeah true but oh man what what about considering a four-way scene <laughs> imagine like four players post 20 we haven't had that yet but having four screens post 29 and having to call that out you know Ooh. and uh keep track of the lines and keep track of all that stuff and then not miss when a crazy moment happens. So when a situation like that happens or any other situation uh, that happens, how do you try to balance the commentary that it's interesting for both the new viewer but also the regular or the experienced viewer? I think if you can break down the important parts of the basics really efficiently with as few words as possible, that's kind of how to do it. Like, first you want to convey it like efficiently. Like you don't want to waste too much words and too much time and you don't want to take away from like the action that's on screen. Yeah. And then um, if there's opportunities during the game that you see, especially like level 18 when they're starting off, those are good times to talk about it. So there's like a time and a place for it. And if you could fit it in, you could fit it in. Since 2017, you commented to CDWC Top 8 with uh, James Cheng. How would you describe your commentator relationship and the chemistry you have between the two of you? The crazy thing is, like, I knew about James Chen. Like, I he was in the fighting game community uh, for longer than there's been a fighting game community. He used to write FAQs on uh, Rec Games Video Arcade or Rec Games Arcade Street Fighter 2 way back in the day. And, uh... Yeah, I worked at a game company back then. I worked on Street Fighter games and stuff like that. So he'd write FAQs on games that I worked on. Uh, and then, you know, I would I would see them and you know, he was like he was like a name that I knew that you know, he was a fighting game expert and he'd write combo guides and things like that. So I knew about James Chen before everybody else knew who James Chen was. Like I guarantee I knew who James Chen was before anybody else did. <laughs> so get this. There is this uh E3 1996. Yeah, way back then, when, 19, when E3 wasn't even, like, on TV or anything. It was, like, ancient history, E3. And they used to have uh, these uh, big tournaments there uh, for fighting games. And uh, James was in a tournament for, I think, Marvel Super Heroes. And I was in a tournament for Street Fighter Alpha 2. And we both were winners of those games. And uh, there was, like, a magazine that that covered those two tournaments. And we were on the same page in the magazine uh, with me uh, winning uh, in uh, Alpha 2 and him winning in Marvel Super Heroes. We're, we're both there on the same page at the same tournament at uh, E3 1996. So in 20, I think it was, yeah, in 2019, I brought a copy of this magazine to, uh, uh, to the CTWC and I, I gave James a copy of it because I was like, hey, remember this? <laughs> We were both, you know, at at uh at E3 in 1996 in separate tournaments, but we both won uh, our Capcom tournaments. So 
Uh, I know him and I respect him so much in the fighting game, what he does in, in fighting game esports uh, commentary. Uh, so just being a gamer at heart is really where our um, our synergy and our kind of like our uh, our kinship comes from is that we know we've we've been playing these things forever and we love games and that that just shows how far back we go. I find it funny that for two people who competed in fighting games in the 90s that you both ended up being a commentator for the classic Tetris World Championship which is contested on NES Tetris and it has nothing to do in the slightest with a fighting game whatsoever. It, it, it's different and similar at the same time because it's such uh, video game competitions in general and uh, if you really break down a fighting game people would describe it as like a real-time chess game because you have to know distances, you have to know placements of the characters and you have no need to know like the frames and the risks of the, the attacks that you're doing. So there's a lot of uh, positional and audiovisual data being exchanged in both games. They're just so different in terms of how it's executed and um, the, the, so the mechanics involved may be very different, but the mental challenge that is presented to the player has a lot of similarities. So when you start gauging like what we do in classic Tetris, where a player has to throttle their aggression and uh, do things for survival and sort of manage the risks, those things are actually very similar. So you can appreciate the competition in a very similar way. And uh, your reactions as an audience are also just as thrilling. It's amazing that a one-player Tetris game can capture the same feelings and emotions as a 1v1 fighting game. I know. That, that, that's the thing that amazes me, right? Like, the game was never designed to be played in the way that we're doing it competitively. Like, later on, they added the competitive aspect. Uh, and there are versions that have two players, but they're not doing it quite in the same way. And the way that we do it, it actually introduces different appreciation because you really have a much better appreciation for stacking and the placements and things like tucks and spins and knowing how little of a window you have to execute. There's a bigger appreciation for that kind of precision and the way that we do it that just can't exist for for guideline because they uh they don't have those those limitations they don't have that those near miss uh life or death situations that that our game has like in that game the death imminence isn't as critical you're just trying to top the other player out by doing an attack but in our game like the survival and the digs matter so much more it doesn't really matter if you last longer than your opponent, you just need to score a higher score. Yeah. And I think a vital part of NES Tetris, of Classic Tetris, is the instant lock. Yeah, you can actually have a whole audience just go, whoa, like, you know, just, if, if so, there's a bad misdrop, right? It's just, oh, you, you, hear, you can just hear the entire audience just like, like, oh no, right? But then if a player can actually dig out of it, it has the other reaction where everybody goes crazy. 
it's also a great way that we start on 18 because we slowly build on a story on 18 we execute the story on 19 and have an amazing end credit scenes on 29 and beyond yeah and actually it uh different styles of players if you notice dog when he was playing wasn't playing as good on 18 but when 19 comes around it's like he he, he gets unleashed and he, he he plays like like way better and it's just like well what happened on 18 how come he's able to play so much better on 19 and that some players are like that it's that uh mental stress maybe maybe if you ha are given too much time uh i think i think uh, it was uh, either ben mullen uh said that you know you're almost always dead and uh that's when you play best because you want your first choice to be uh the best choice and the best players are going to be the ones that make uh the best choice uh as the only choice they do they they always do but hey i want to move on to something completely different i want to move on to the best of five the classic tetris champion documentary you worked on it, you provided brand new commentary alongside with James Chang uh, for the documentary. And I reached out to Chris Higgins once more, just like we did with the last episode with Pumpy Heart. We got once again full blessings to talk about the documentary the way we want. So thank you so much for that, Chris. In 2014, Chris Higgins shot a huge part of the documentary. What was the vibe during CTWC 2014 that there was going to be a sequel to the ecstasy of order that's something i always wanted i i thought that um ecstasy of order was a good start but there's so many stories coming out in our community and uh especially now like if back in 2014 of course i wanted one but even now i think that <laughs> yeah there needs to be more stuff uh made from uh documenting what's been going on because all the stories are, are just so amazing and um deserves more of a spotlight so I'm I'm glad that they were planning to do this and that they shot that footage and that we're going to get to start illustrating those stories. You know, like really my ultimate uh thing that I want to see happen is I want to see them turn this into like an anime or something that encompasses every arc, right? From from the um from the very beginning, you know, Jonas's uh, seven uh world championships into the into the Joseph arc with you know the new generation of players and then the third season's got the rolling coming into the scene and uh, you know, will will tapping survive? And I just want it to be like really over over the top. But in order to get there, you have to have source material because every good, you know, anime or every good cinematic universe has some kind of source material. And it's you know things like Exceed Order and Best of Five of the Tetris Champions is going to be the next one. It's going to be pivotal in and making that ultimate dream of the of the CTWC anime happen. So I'm I'm definitely for having this documentary uh, become all it can be do you think it's possible to have a full-length movie or a series either uh in the cinemas or on the streaming platforms that it's set in a fictional world but it's based around nes tetris well i don't know i mean they could right but i think what makes what we do really interesting is the real life uh science so to say, behind our techniques and things like that. And having actual players and actual techniques uh, be the basis for the fantastical. So you, you might see on the screen, like the screen might flash and, and the player might like move their hands, you know, like uh, 
at unreal speeds and things like that, you know, illustrated in epic fashion with CG effects and things like that. But that's based on something like, you know, someone hyper tapping, you know, like core, whether it be Corian or Joseph or uh, Mark Mayer, you know, it, we have those legends and they're real, right? Like they, we know that we've got fast tappers and now we've got rollers and we're going to have to see that illustrated larger than life in some kind of epic fashion. But why not have like the real player? I mean, you could have like, you know, someone with a, a fictitious version of them or something or a fictitious character that uses those same techniques. But when you have someone, you know, like Cheese innovating something that's real, like you kind of don't want to disrespect that because it's so cool. But I don't know. I'd rather, I would take either. Uh, I really like, uh, so when people would ask me what my favorite anime is, I would say Hikaru no Go or Initial D. And those are actually competitive anime. Like it's like someone who's honing their craft to be their best and they have these secret techniques. But those, uh, if you think about Initial D, that's about um, racing and the drifting technique. And those drifting techniques are actually things that they use in real life that are possible. So delving into the science and delving into what makes the real life uh, thing possible. Like they, there probably is a story and a driver that Initial D is based on, but then the characters in the anime are completely fictitious. So it could be that way. Like those, those things interest me too. So maybe you could have something that's fictitious, but yet based in, on the science. Oh man, I hope we'll get a classic Tetris anime. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I just keep. I'm gonna. I'm gonna start pitching that more when I talk. So whenever I get interviewed, it's like, come on, man, we gotta see that the, the Tetris anime. It's gotta happen, please, please, please. Yeah, and if you want to get an idea of what that might feel like, uh, watch Hikaru no Go or Initial D. It would be my recommendations because those really have the spirit of competition. That uh, you know, I I grew up with those, and then I ended up. What better could I ask for than to be living my real life anime fantasy? in classic Tetris competition, right? Like, I'm actually seeing it happen in real life, and I'm getting to be a part of it. Like we mentioned, you provided new commentary for the Best of Five documentary alongside with James Chang. When did Chris Higgins contacted you to get you on board for providing new commentary? A while ago. I think it was a couple, two, three years ago, maybe. Um, it was before their Kickstarter went up. Jeez, I'm, I'm not sure if it was... I knew that, that Chris Higgins was working on it, but I, I know that at some point, uh, because of um, uh, the pandemic and stuff, he had more time to work on it and actually finish it. Um, I'm not sure if he asked me before that or whether or not that's when we set the dates. But uh, yeah, it was probably in the last couple of years. What did you think when Chris Higgins asked you to provide new commentary for this documentary? I thought that was cool. Like, because. I just wanted to see more ecstasy of order type stuff being made. I wanted to see more documentaries and uh, I, I really wanted to, uh, I, I know that the tech that they were using uh, pre tray vision uh, wasn't the best and geez, the amount of work that Chris Higgins has to do to make that movie even, or to make the series now even happen. I can't believe like how much effort's being put into that, but it's going to be awesome. I was just really excited to be able to contribute to that. And also uh, I didn't think maybe the commentary I did back in 2014 was like the best. So having a chance to do it again is actually a good thing for me. Like I, I thought that it would be a chance to, uh, to took what I learned all over the years and uh, actually do, do what should have been done uh, the way I would want to have done it. 
What was it like to travel from Phoenix to California during the pandemic? And did you see Chris Higgins and James Chang for the first time since, I think, CTWC 2019? Yeah, but to be honest, it was the first time I left my neighborhood since uh, the beginning of uh, 2020. So, yeah, I had I had basically been in self-imposed lockdown for one and three quarter years by that point. So it says January of 2020 all the way to oh, one and a half years. I think it was like July or something. So, yeah, it's, it's about a year and a half. And I didn't leave my neighborhood, like literally not even like past like the supermarket one block from me. Oh, wow. So it's the first time you leave your neighborhood and did you fly, you drove by car and did you travel alone or with someone else? <laughs> I drove with a friend. It's not that far. It's about maybe four or five hours, but I mean, there's, you know, we visited people along the way and there's things to do. So it wasn't like the only thing that, that, uh, being on the road wasn't the only thing that we had to do. So it, it was, it, it was, it was fun. It was good. It is probably the best thing I've done in the last six months. So you made a fun road trip out of it. Yeah. 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 It was good. And it was really good seeing, uh, James and Chris and, uh, just, uh, getting to hang out with, with people was it hard to pretend that it was 2014 again it wasn't that hard because i had lived that and uh at that point in time it was pretty much i would only kind of kind of see the storyline advance in the at the at the end of the year you know like they would, they would have the tournament and then it wouldn't the scene wouldn't change from from year to year so it was really easy to plug myself back into it because uh that that's how it was that that's how we progressed back then nowadays it's not like that you know nowadays the scene changes you know records are being broken week on week and sometimes day to day uh but back then it was like nothing moved till the next year so putting myself back in 2013 to 2014 was not hard obviously when you see the footage back of 2014 you get the memories attached to it did you use those memories to help you with the commentary not too much. Um, back then, like I said, it was something that we just kind of did and we, we kind of had fun with it. And I didn't take it super seriously back then because I had no idea. Like, keep in mind, 2014, it was not on ESPN yet. It was not on YouTube yet. It was not viral in any sense of the word. It was kind of just super nerdy thing that we did. And I liked doing it because it was with my friends. And I didn't really, you know, stab a stake into the ground that this is, you know, one of the most important moments of my life because it was just something I did with my friends at the time. I think at the time I was more concerned about whether or not my commentary, you know, I was just trying to keep it not terrible and um, just to do a good job so that my friends would be happy with the work I did. How did the recording go? Did you did everything in one take provided live commentary with it or did you need to re-record different lines so guess what we kind of just did everything one take it all just went and uh yeah it was super smooth it was done very professionally we had a great studio uh everything was set up super well and it was very efficient and we didn't really have to do uh any reshoots or anything like that we watched the games being presented as they'll be uh shown in uh, the documentary series and we commentated along with it. And uh, if Chris was happy with it, uh, that's what would go. And he didn't ask us to do retakes. So even though I've been happy to have done them, in fact, 
I almost felt kind of bad because it's like, we're there now. Uh, if we need to do more, let's do them. But he was happy with them. So if uh, if that's the case, then if he needs more, you know, we're, we're around or you know, I'm willing to do them. But sounds like he's been happy with it. So uh, what was your overall reaction with the recording session and meeting up with James and meeting up with Chris? I, I loved it. It was like, the like I said, it's like the best thing I did in the last six months. Uh, besides, well, besides doing the commentary for ctwc but like in in terms of like you know being able to like leave the house here's the only time i left the neighborhood and in, in the last like couple of years so uh but yeah just seeing james and just hanging out with them and being just knowing that you know i'm with friends and uh i mean that, that's more from my perspective because i know other people have you know they've kind of like returned into normal life maybe by now but but i definitely haven't so uh it was it was really nice and i, I can't wait to do more stuff like that again kind of feel like I'm doing something normal humans do again, you know? I, I told them that too. I was really thankful for for the opportunity to 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 do something more than what I'm used to for the last couple of years. If there's going to be a sequel to the Best of Five documentary, which CTWC or which year should that classic Tetris documentary be about? I'm not sure if I can yeah, because I've, I've put enough thought into it to imagine the anime, right? So you can't really do it by year. You kind of have to do it by arcs because there's certain things that happened that were pivotal that gave the momentum for a major shift for some kind of change, right? Like definitely the, the, the biggest change was Joseph and the new generation because that changed the face of our entire scene. Where you had, where you once had, you know, people who were thirty somethings or even older than that, who had grown up with the game, were your main core competitive base. Those were the people that were playing. Those were the people that were best at the game. And then that shifted to younger players. And once you showed that a teenager could become the champion of this game, that inspired other teenagers to follow suit. And then you saw this. Now that that's what our scene looks like. So that was the most important change. And you have to kind of start that, I believe, in uh, the second arc starts in 2016 because Boom Tetris for Jeff made that wave happen. So that it starts in 2016 and it goes through to about, I'd say, 2020 and uh, the Joseph era. And uh, that that's the arc that should be illustrated uh, with whatever the next documentary series is about. Uh, so yeah, 2014 is a very important year because that was the one year where uh, Jonas, the invincible champion, you know, had a, it had a different outcome. So that's super important to note because it also cements Jonas's comeback uh, for the years after that. Hey, my final question to you is, do you have any intention of picking up any Estetris in the future? And what are the goals that you are trying to achieve? I would like to. I mean, they kind of have me doing the exhibition thing every year, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do for the next time I do that. Uh, but, you know, someday I'll, you know, bucket list goal is just to max it out. Uh, I think that's within my reach. It's just I need the time to do it. Uh, but I have a lot of other goals I need to do. I need to I need to ship some games first, the, you know, or, you know, release some, some of my indie games, and then I need to... Uh, I don't know. I, I, there, there are a bunch of goals I have that are of a higher priority, but it's on there. You know, it's it's on the list of things to do, and uh, I'll probably be streaming it again at some point. It's just 
there's just so much other stuff I need to do first. But that, that's my plan is I'll I'll play it again someday. I'm not sure what the high score records are going to be like by the time I do it. it. might be like 3 million by then. But maxing out, it's still a good goal to have. And I think uh, it's a good bar to a realistic bar. Like, you know, because the players are getting better, I'm not going to expect myself to to hit, you know, like 2 million or something or learn rolling or or, or do anything crazy like that. But maxing it out is, is perfectly within my reach. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on this month's Peace Dependency Podcast. It was honestly a true blessing to have you on. It was an honor to be on and uh, I can't wait to see your podcast in the future. Thanks, Ermazer. And with that all being said, this will be the end of the Peace Dependency Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and follow me on the socials at Surmazer. For now, have a great chat for this month, and I will see you all in February. Bye! The Peace Dependency Podcast was brought to you by Total Radness. Shop your goofy food controller, TWO merch, and CTWC approved hardware on totalradnes.com. <laughs> <laughs>